Report in the Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week, I am excited to bring you a conversation that I had with Jack Santucci. He's a political scientist and author of the book, More Parties or No Parties, The Politics of Electoral Reform in America. As some of you may know, I have kind of a soft spot for electoral reform. I think it's really interesting and provides a way forward in times when a lot of our politics and our democracy can feel intractable. So I was excited to have this conversation with Jack. Uh, As he makes clear, political reform is easier said than done. And he traces that both in the book and in this conversation. Uh, We get into the weeds on some of the different types of reform, different variations of ranked choice voting and proportional representation, and also about some of the history of trying these types of reforms at the city and state level. We also talk about some of the places that Jack is excited about these changes happening and some of the barriers that will prevent them from taking hold moving forward. So we will get right to it. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jack Santucci. Jack Santucci, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jenna. This is a really interesting time to be talking about political reform, as I'm sure we'll get into. But before we do, I just I'm I'm kind of curious about um, how you came to be interested in in studying political reform. Was it born out of your own frustration with our electoral system, or maybe your frustration with the people trying to reform the system? How did this start for you? Uh, it starts a long time ago. Uh, I mean, I met college in Canada. It's called university in Canada. And I'd actually had exposure to what we'll talk about, the single transferable vote as a a high school student. Uh, But I don't know something about the Bush years in the States and seeing how the country reacted to 9-11, coming home to that my first Thanksgiving, and then being living in, I guess, a multi-party system. Uh, And I, I toward the end of college, I approached a professor said, well, you know, here's kind of what I'm interested in. She said, you should go work for these people for a year and then try to get into the best grad school you could get into. And then through that, I discovered that there was this sort of whole mythology built up around um, historical experience with proportional representation in American cities. And that was a very positive story. And there were stories about why it had disappeared. And I wanted to get to the bottom of why it had disappeared. I was learning things in graduate school that, that, you know, we'll get into it, but that's where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and much of that history does come out in your book, more parties or no parties. Um, but let's just maybe start with, with some definitions as well. So as, as you point out in the book, the term ranked choice voting, which has come into to fashion very much over the past couple of years, it's, it's used publicly as, as kind of a catch-all, but it, there's really several different types of ranked choice voting and a lot of, of different uh, granularities and, and nuance within it. Would you mind just kind of walking us through that? Um, you know, what, what people mean when they say ranked choice voting and maybe the other things that are not being talked about or what's being left out of that conversation? Uh, yeah, strictly speaking, it, it means a way of marking a ballot that the voter is invited or required to rank all choices or some number of choices. And then once you have that information, you can, you can do different things with it. Uh, you can give 
you can try to find a majority winner. You might not get one. You can try to have majority and minority faction representation in a district that has multiple seats. Or you can give every single seat in a multi-seat district to uh, the majority faction. And, and that's just what we do with the rankings. That doesn't say anything about what, what other nomination rules you combine it with, for example. It, it gets hairy pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just in my email inbox for this show, I hear about I hear from people who are promoting star voting and final five voting and approval voting and score voting and on and on and on and on and on. Um, and I, I guess I wonder, as someone who has really studied this stuff and and is also kind of involved in talking with the reform community like how important is it that there's there's agreement on one type of of voting reform or kind of one solution or or path forward here i find myself getting frustrated that like wouldn't it be better if everybody just kind of picked one and all put our efforts behind that as opposed to competing for time and money and attention and all of those things that's a complicated question. I, I think the, there's a fight about these kinds of different forms, star voting, approval voting, score voting, range voting, various flavors of rank choice. And where that fight comes from is interesting. Why we have that fight instead of a, a fight about what type of party list based proportional representative. That's an interesting question. And then with the sort of question you're asking is, well, what, shouldn't everybody just get behind one thing and promote that? I, I don't know if that's a good idea. Uh, or, come out swinging. I mean, I look at what's going on and I wonder if no reform at all is better than everything that's currently on on offer. Um, and what you see in the book is that there was a similar fight about different voting methods, what these people mm. call them. And then when the money comes in, they really sort of, they put it, they get everybody in a lockstep behind rank choice PR mm. with a particular type of local government. So uh, feel free to j- dig in on any of that. Uh-huh. It's, it kind of strikes me as a silly conversation. And it's one that's happening because there is no path forward. The, this also kind of gets to the more parties or no parties aspect of this and so there's the people who say well we don't want any you know we we are independent we don't we fight the duopoly we don't believe in in the party structure but then um there are others who think well actually we need something maybe more akin to a parliamentary system where mm-hmm. you know you know parties can form coalitions and and work work together um you know on on, on, on advancing shared interests, shared goals, shared legislation, what have you. So how, how do you think about that question? We have a lot of research in political behavior on people who say they're independent and whether that actually pans out in their voting behavior and, you know, what sort of policy preferences that lines up with. And uh, you've spoken to some of those researchers and you, you know what's going on there. Uh, I think there's something sociologically interesting to the fact that so many people have decided to call themselves independent. And then there's the irony <laughs> in the middle of the book uh, that these independent politics people actually have to go off and create parties because they've got, because <laughs> their reforms aren't working. And the book is not an argument that, hey, we should have more parties. I think the book is more an argument that uh, if you if you sort of say 
damn reform. I like the two-party system. You're going to get this anti-party reform activity, and it has potentially all kinds of downstream consequences. Not all types of proportional representation are created equal, right? You, you, you might adopt proportional representation, not because you care about the number of parties, but because other properties of the system make the parties you do have stronger. And in the process, you might get multi-party politics. Uh, on the other side of that, you might get multi-party politics out of that. Nobody's, nobody's really out there saying, hey, that's what we should be doing. There are people out there saying we should just have more parties. And then there are people out there saying we should blow up parties completely. And then there are people out there saying F reform, two-party system, hell or high water. Mm-hmm. I wish there was somebody saying let's have a multi-party democracy. Yeah. You mentioned proportional representation before. Um, for folks who might not be familiar with that, can you walk us through the basics of of how that works and, and why it, it aligns nicely with some of the ballot reforms that we were talking about earlier? Uh, uh, so if I were a reformer in 1922, I would say if you get 10% of votes, you get 10% of seats in a legislature. And then what's the you? <laughs> uh, it, most people think it's a party. But single transferable vote and some of these other ballot reforms when you try to sort of force them to work with that idea that 10% of votes get 10% of percent of seats in the legislature, it doesn't have to be a party. And that's the argument reformers will make. Well, if voters want to vote along party lines, they'll get party proportional representation, but they have the freedom to do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got, we got complicated very quickly, but again, it's these 10% of votes get you 10% of seats in the legislature. And yet not all of these things are created alike and the ones being promoted right now might not give a party with 10% of votes, 10% of seats in a legislature. Right. So to, to maybe uh, bring this a little bit into to sharper focus, I, I know you tell um, a lot of stories, give, give a lot of examples in the book of cities like New York and Cincinnati and, and Worcester, Massachusetts and, and places all over the country that that experimented with these reforms 100 years ago or so. Um, is, is there one in particular that stands out to you or you think is, is particularly instructive to help, you know, modern day reformers kind of think about, you know, or, or learn from this history as we, we contemplate how best to move forward? Um, yeah, I think the Cincinnati story is crucial because for a lot of reasons, but for me, it was because everything that was happening there, as I went through the roll call votes and figured out what the party factions were, uh, everything that was happening there from 1925 to 1955 kind of also happened to the national party system, which makes sense because Ohio and Hamilton County generated so many huge political figures in our politics. Potter Stewart, the Taft family, uh, a whole bunch of people who were involved with the House Un-American Activities Committee, one of the few third-party legislators we've had in in the House of Representatives. Um, And so the Cincinnati story is really important. And I think the punchline on the Cincinnati story is that uh, we hit the progressive era, that sort of anti-party, let's reform it all spirit, comes into place, and you can think of a sort of three-faction system in the city, progressive Republicans, stand-pat Republicans, and sort of institutional Democrats. And over time, uh, the progressive Republicans basically fold into 
the regular Democratic Party, which brings us up to the civil rights realignment. Um, and it's, it's that, that civil rights or labor combo Democratic Party uh, that can't hold itself together under these rules. And um, the Republican Party in Cincinnati had always wanted to get rid of this thing. And then the Democrats say, you know what, this actually isn't good for this mid-century party building project that we're engaged in. Uh, and and, and the, the unions literally fly someone in from Washington, D.C. to bring the, bring the hammer down on this thing. And when you bring the hammer down on it in the poster child for reform, you start to bring the hammer down on it nationally. So there's a New York City communist story, but the Cincinnati yeah. story is more interesting. Yeah. Uh, so what was what was the argument for bringing the hammer down? Why did they say that the the reforms were not good for the the cause, or you know, for where where things were at that point in time? Um. So we come out of World War II. Before World World War II, organized labor is kind of floating between the parties. It's very ambivalent about these reforms. It's divided. The the labor movement itself in Cincinnati is divided on these reforms. And we come out of World War II, and then they just start lining up. Org labor starts lining up behind the Democratic Party. And we're a couple of years out from the merger of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. And uh, so by the time you get to like 1954, you've really just got two modern day pre polarization precursor two party competition in that city and the the charter committee which is the coalition of the the regular democrats and the progressive republicans the progressive republicans are reduced to one in that party and so let's just call it the democratic party the democratic party says hey we want to start pushing some of some of our national policy goals um and the, the lone progressive republican is, creates problems for that. She has a really good record on race relations, uh, but she's not very good on org labor. And that's one that's one one thing that happens there. There are other things happening there. Uh, but you know, at a very technical level, um, the part the Democratic Party as it exists in Cincinnati cannot control what voters are doing with its ranking with their rankings. They cannot it, it cannot control its own deputies in government. And uh, that and there are some things happening to the institutional Republican Party as well. And both sides just sort of say, that's enough. Let's let's go to party responsibility. Let's go back to let's go Mm -hmm. back to party responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's the slogan that gets used to repeal this stuff. We often hear today that, you know, ranked choice voting, however it's described, it's it's too complicated. People aren't going to be able to understand it. Uh, How did how did previous era reformers deal with that and you know i also wonder about the extent to which our modern media system today is is helpful or perhaps hurtful in terms of it it allows space for these debates about the the effectiveness of these reforms whereas when you just had a newspaper every day there was you know maybe not as much opportunity for that conversation it's confusing and people are trying to figure out how it's confusing um but you know there's some level of ballot invalidity or self-reported confusion. It's not a huge group of people, um, but that ha- that's a consequence of this. And yet, and yet, when it when it's in the interests of politicians to have a system like this, they sort of play that down and ignore it and pretend it's a problem. Uh, pretend it's not a problem, or they'll say things like, "Oh, it always takes time." 
for people to get used to this stuff. That's just collateral damage on the way to a, a democracy that respects voter choice or something like that. Uh, and then we go, we'll go through a sort of reform period like that. And then when people start to get upset with the policy outcomes or the, the lack of party responsibility, if you will, all of a sudden, everybody thinks this thing is confusing and it elects communists and it elects black agitators. And right. Uh, so the confusion thing is complicated. What's scary from a social science perspective is that there appears to have been a real chill in the academy around the way this stuff was talked about in the mid-1920s. In other words, if we go to the 19-teens, there's, there's skepticism. Um, you read about that in the book. And by the, t- by the time we get to the 1920s, early 1930s, critics have to really, academic critics have to really tone it down, change the way that they talk about uh, voters' inability to rank a lot of choices and stuff like that. That's frightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so coming back to where where we had left off before, sort of the the nineteen fifties, and the you know back to this idea of of party responsibility, you know it strikes me, and and, and you've made the the point as well that a lot of the the reformers working today, this is the first time we've really done this since the the Voting Rights Act passed. How should we be thinking about that and making sure that, you know, whatever reforms come to pass, whether it's at the, you know, municipal level, the state level, or, you know, even even federally, that, uh, you know, voting rights are, are, are part of the uh, reforms and, you know, part of the story in, in a way that it didn't necessarily have to be, it, you know, back in the, in, back in the 20s. So the so these reforms are embedded in good government municipal reform charters, and the research on the adoption of good government municipal reform charters says that they were easier to pass when voting restriction had already reduced the size of the electorate and started to have all kinds of consequences for parties. Um, so, you know. 1890, there's a lodge bill in Congress that might have prevented Jim Crow in the South and other other stuff that has similar effects in the North and, and Midwest. Uh, and that 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 bill that bill is dies in the Senate. There's a filibuster, and then you get the Progressive Era. Um, so if you're a reformer, there's a sort of perverse incentive to not care. Like if your number one goal is racking up reform wins, mm-hmm. that job can actually become easier when the voting rights situation decays. Um, and it doesn't mean that reformers are collaborators in the erection of a new regime of voting restriction, although this sort of, oh, it, you know, there's always some confusion on the front end and we'll, you know, we'll figure it out with time or we'll, we'll throw more money at voter education. It signals a sort of, oh, shucks, we lost the voting rights fight, but who cares because we've got this other thing mm-hmm. that we're working on. Um, and, you know, we actually need to work with some of those people to get some of this stuff passed. That's maybe a longer answer than what you're looking for. Nobody's really like, quote unquote, to, to blame for creating the mess that was uh the american suffrage regime from 18 what 1900 to 1965 but you know like 
we all share some responsibility maybe for avoiding another one of those. Yeah. And I guess as a, as a follow-up to that, like, do you think that the, um, you know, the, the, the reformers that you have engaged with and, and observed and seen is voting rights as much a part of the conversation today as it needs to be or, or should be? I think there's a lot of lip service, some evidence, um, but mainly lip service that, that getting the party out of the way with star approval, whatever, any of these sort of anti-party reforms makes things better for women and candidates of color. Um, but that is, that's it, right? It's sort of still working with, still need, still need people whose first priority isn't voting rights to pass these things, sometimes actively working with people who are hostile to voting rights to pass these things. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a direct answer to the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, the you know, I, I know you were in the audience at the uh, virtual event that we did with Andrew Yang last fall, and he, of course, has announced that his forward party which was in its infancy then is expanding now in coalition with um some of the moderate never trump republicans um and as from what i understand they are trying to say that they are both building something that will appeal to the no party people or the you know independent voters but also trying to build the to to make the case for political reform as as part of doing that work uh, do you think that they're going to be successful or is that even, are those even two things that can happen at, at the same time in the way that they seem to, to articulate them? Uh, I think that Yang, Yang's candidacy will do a lot more to popularize anti-party reform than it will do to create a long-term viable third party in the United States. Uh, the, the the reasoning there is that it's not the People's Party of the 1890s. It's not a, a socialist party it's, that you would see in Western Europe. It's not even a kind of Green Party that's, you know, if we go to the 80s and 90s of last century, it's not that. It's sort of, we need, it's a moderate thing. Um, mm. Its platform is reform. And I think the progressive, that's what the progressives were the bull moose mm -hmm. progressives. I mean, there was sort of talk about trusts and monopolies and uh, the electricity's too expensive in, in wherever. Um, but, you know, but there were also the socialists at the same time and they can't work with each other for some reason. Yeah, I guess there's there's a sense if if you are if you think of yourself as independent or anti-party, you are maybe more yeah more resistant to coalition, or you you think of yourself as as somebody who you know, it's sort of the 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 I alone can fix it type of approach. Or yeah, there there is I I think you're right some some resistance to form coalitions and, and those kind of things. Yes, absolutely. That's the that's the cross. So if we go back to 1913, are we you gonna I don't know if we're gonna talk about 1913. Yeah. But uh, this, this, 
there are these reform charters floating around and the socialists commission a study of these things and they're they're like look some of these are not good for minority representation you're combining instant runoff voting or or runoff systems with multi-seat districts like do you not see that this wipes out numerical minority representation and oh by the way you know if this nonpartisan stuff is a fiction and you're you're going if you do that you're going to hand control of government to quote the banks, railroads, and great daily newspapers and all of that. But there's also a theory of party politics that these people are advancing. And that theory of party politics looks a lot like the theories of party politics you might teach in an undergrad American politics course today. And nobody, nope. And it says, look, this is about coalition. This is about, you know, groups coming together to work on points of common agreement and setting aside differences and the pro- progressives don't want to hear it, uh, but I also think that le- movement leadership doesn't want people to hear it. Say more about that. Why not? Uh, these ballot reforms, the single transferable vote is really the originating one, has always sort of appealed to people who want to bust up political parties or don't uh, people who oppose political parties, but also people who sort of are on the political right. It's always been that way. Uh, you know, back when Carl Andre was developing this stuff in Denmark and John Stuart Mill was popularizing it, it was all about, oh my God, you know, mass parties are emerging. What are we going to do? You know, let's, ha- let's use this, let's use this reform to save the old local notables. Uh, make sure they get some seats in the multi-seat district. And then if we go to the United Kingdom, where this it's often said that single transferable vote rank choice proportional representation is British proportional representation. Why is that? It's because it was it was a cause celebre among the liberal Democrats, right? At precisely the time that they're being, they see themselves as being supplanted by the Labour Party as the main opposition force in British politics. And what's their response? Break up political parties. I mean, that's intellectually, I think, where this thing comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, so that's a, that's a big conversation. It's like, what does this whole parties thing in political science mean? Does it really just mean a labor party? Does it really just mean a party of the left? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to go there. Yeah. Well, I guess let's let's talk about uh, you know you, I know that um, you have been invited to to talk with with reform groups, and this is not always this, this, these arguments you're making about anti party and sort of the the dangers of that don't always go over <laughs> very well. Um, I, I guess can can you say more about the opposition that you've heard and and where you think it it. It comes from and you know how you maybe try to to counter that uh i think this sort of uh there are two big intellectual foundations of it one is is median voter theorem mm-hmm. and a very stripped down version of the median voter theorem so politics exists along a line there's a left there's a right and there's a middle and these parties are are, are pinning the left and the right and we got to get them out of the way because things will go go back to the middle and that's how normal people sort of walk around. That's how, that's how people walk around and think about politics and should when political conditions are normal, 
when when politics is arguably one dimensional. And that's not I don't think that's what's happening right now in American politics. You read the book. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is that it's not I don't think it occurs naturally to a person, an everyday person to say, to sort of say, to admit to themselves or sort of say, yeah, you know, I'm not a specialist in politics and it's, I'm actually better off if I have a party that represents me. So I can just like elect that party and then go have it argue for policies in my interest. So I can like go do whatever it is I do for a living. It doesn't sort of occur to people. That's a hard argument to make. And political scientists who teach like undergrad American politics will say, yeah, it's like, it's very hard to tell undergrads that, that parties are actually good. Especially when they look at a political system like the one we have and they're like, well, this is the fault of the Republican and Democratic mm. parties. And then, you know, and then so then people have incentives to talk about the median voter theorem and the problems with parties. And it's really hard. It's you're pushing a boulder up a hill when you're going against median voter theorem, uh, this this belief in the Rousseauian general will and the incentives of the industry to <laughs> perpetuate those myths there's a lot of activity around reform as as we've we've been discussing um i know we have a very reform minded audience here um i i hope that people will will read your book and and learn about all of the the great historical examples that you share but if you could offer maybe some some parting words of wisdom or, you know, things that, you know, today's reformers should be thinking about to make sure that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself in a, in a bad way. Uh, This is bigger. This is, this, what's happening is bigger than any of us. Uh, Like, I don't think any one reformer can sort of do anything about that. And Mm -hmm. some have said to me, Jack, this is how American politics works. If you, you're not going to get, you're not going to get on board or stay on board with this stuff. You're going to get left behind. Uh, just be careful, you know, ask the, ask the question, what does the system I am putting in place mean for the people who have the hardest time voting or the hardest time participating or the hardest time finding and consuming the information that's needed to make an informed choice? What, what does what I am doing mean for those people? And, you know, when someone comes out with results that show that one half of 1% or 2% or 5% of voters struggled with a new implementation, a take it more seriously um, than we currently do. Right now, we just sort of say, oh, whatever, that's a one-off. People will get used to this thing. And they might not. Uh, or, you know, as new people come into the electorate, they may encounter the same problems. Just be careful. I don't think we can, I don't think, I decreasingly think we can get it right this time. I don't think we can get it right this time. I think the ship has sailed. Um, so we just, it's, that means it's on reformers to do the work that Congress didn't do over the past two years in shoring up voting rights federally. Mm. Right. Um, and you know, speaking, speaking of, of Congress, uh, I know you also have talked about the Fair Representation Act. Um, would you sort of put that into the, the camp also of like, that ship has sailed or, you know, do you, what, where do you see that going forward? If, if anywhere, I don't see an adoption path at the federal level for proportional representation at all of any type. Um, just, 
I mean, the the theory the theory at the beginning of 2021 was that, geez, the Democrats um, the Democrats really would benefit from this thing, and now they've got the power that they need to put it into place, you know, so let's, let's, let's at least put it on the table for them so that they can, whether it's the fair rep act or other alternatives that have been proposed uh, so that they can look at it and decide for themselves. But the, if the political will isn't there to protect the basic, a, ba- a basic right to vote. Uh, and, and, and by the way, protecting a basic right to vote probably is good for Democrats that would benefit them. Right. if they're not sort of able to not willing, able to do that collectively, they're not able collectively to pass a form of proportional representation that would be good for them as well. Mm. Um, the Fair Rep Act on its own is a good bill. It uh, it provides for the single transferable vote, ranked choice proportional representation in districts of three to five seats. But it is also sort of designed, it is designed to appeal to groups who are really thinking about how do I win reform at the local level? It's not designed to appeal to a group of members of Congress who need to keep their seats or a party that's in control of the House that needs to keep its majority. The other argument that I, I hear sometimes is that why are we focusing on these kind of picayune sort of reforms when the you know, democracy itself is kind of hanging in the balance and shouldn't we be focused more on preventing democratic backsliding any, any further than we're already seeing? Uh, Mm -hmm. do you think that we can walk and chew gum at the same time here? I don't think that the doom loop ends, to borrow Drutman's phrase, with full-blown authoritarianism, a military coup. That kind of stuff is bad for business. I think that the doom loop probably ends with sort of gradual erosion of, of, of ease of voting, which is what we've, we're already seeing and have been seeing for much longer than, than Trump was just, was president. You had Grumbach on the show. He told you, told you all about that, I'm sure. Um, and nobody notices, right? It's sort of upper SES, upper socioeconomic status people won't notice or care. They, they're still going to have a great, you know, find it easy to vote. And it's only kind of in retro, we'll, we'll sort of look back in retrospect, maybe if the country is still here in a century and say, gee, that was a pretty bad time for American democracy. Um, so yeah, it is possible to sort of walk and shoot gum at the same time if walking means oh shucks you know well we're backsliding but there's not much we can do about it let's just go do these reforms let's mm. chew the gum and do these reforms while while we backslide as somebody who is deeply uh ingrained in in studying these things what what are you what are you watching as we head into this this next election cycle and maybe even looking further out are there cities or or states or or places that you think have particularly um interesting reforms that you think are maybe on on a good path and are are worthy of of holding up as examples from our present era uh nevada is on my mind and seattle is on my mind and portland is on my mind. Um, Nevada, I have not seen any public opinion data. So Nevada has a statewide to a series of statewide initiatives over the next few years on final five voting, which many of your listeners will understand as open primaries plus RCV. Uh, I, like Dan, I have not seen any data on who supports it and who doesn't, although I have seen anecdotes on what sort of interest groups 
are supportive of it and not. And, and the other big thing that happened in Nevada is alleged democratic socialist takeover of the Democratic Party. So there's a Democratic Party with an internal division on economics. And my mind, as as a scholar of why institutions get adopted, immediately goes to the possibility that reformers want to exploit that division in the Democratic Party. Uh, What does that mean for the types of policy outcomes you're going to get? What does it mean for the longevity of the reform in Nevada? Should it be adopted, right? You've basically got a coalition of the middle against the ends to adopt this thing, if if that's what bears out in the survey data on mm-hmm. who supports it and who doesn't. Uh, Seattle, there's a fight over approval voting. Mm-hmm. Approval voting is a system, is a, uh, is a ballot type, really, that allows you to, it was designed to elect a single winner uh, in one round, uh, but it allows you to, to, to mark as many candidates as you want and that has long, ever since the American proportional representation movement decided to promote instant runoff or single winner ranked choice, it has contended with approval voting mm-hmm. for hegemony in this. You know, you referenced this fight earlier. Uh, well, you know, approval voting's got money now. And Seattle, you know, they've got, they passed it in Fargo, they, they passed it in St. Louis, and they brought in a new set of nonpartisan elections in St. Louis. Now the fight goes to Seattle, uh, and you know I wonder is like is approval voting going to become the sort of twenty mm. first century vehicle for nonpartisan elections by people who think they're actually expanding voter choice and improving democracy? We'll see. And then Portland, really interesting. Portland has this. Um, they Portland has a has a city charter left over from a very early wave of RCV adoption in the 19 teens. And they're fine. And the, the RCV came out, but they still have the small city council with nonpartisan elections elected at large. And they're considering moving to proportional single transferable vote, rank choice PR. They're going to keep the nonpartisan elections, but move to rank choice PR and things will be learned there. Um, in, in, in a way it's almost like they're finally coming they're finally adopting the reform that was settled on in 1960 <laughs> that got kind of didn't have a great track record. Um, so what gets learned there will inform what happens going in the future, I think. Yeah. Uh, so as we, we come to the end of our time here, Jack, I want to close with maybe a, a philosophical question. Something I've mm-hmm. been thinking about a lot lately is, this um the the idea on the one hand of a voter discontent you know frustration with with the two-party system on and on and on and the proposed reform and reforms no matter what it is what flavor it takes uh, can they ever really address the discontent that's at the heart of the no parties or, or anti-party contingent anti-party is a weird thing anti-party anti-party is on the one hand people republicans who are sort of really disgusted by trump but they but they're 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 conservative on Mm. policy there's that element to it but there's also this kind of generational anti-party thing happening kevin munger was on the show Mm -hmm. and uh you know i think the generational component like so that's that's a problem across advanced democracies. We've just got kind of 
problems in party systems across Western democracies right now. And it's tempting to say, well, if you just sort of throw more money at people or do job creation stuff that might fix it. But I think there has been like a lot of social disruption. You mentioned social media earlier, but just massive change in the structure of economies. Uh, And it's like not clear to me that there's an easy path to happiness, right? It's kind of like the economic base is changing, if you will. And the superstructure of politics and policy needs to catch up. And I think that's kind of what ha- that's kind of what happened in, in, in after World War II, right? It's sort of mm-hmm. we had we had an industrial boom. Uh, you know about your Progressive Era. You know about your Lochner Court, and and then everybody sort of gets fat and happy in the fifties and sixties uh, with home two car garages. Um, mm-hmm. I, so I don't know. We're in for we're in for a ride. I think. Is that a, that, I don't know yeah. if that's a philosophical answer to a philosophical <laughs> no, okay. question. We'll leave it there. Uh, I hope everybody, especially the, the, the reformers in our audience will um, check out your book to learn more about um, all the, the great history that you tell. Jackson Tucci, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna.